Romans chapter 8, verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is, no, is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The word of the Lord. There is no hope. Those are probably words that no one never wants to hear. There is no hope. Well, I remember thinking, there is no hope. A couple of years ago, a couple of us decided to tackle a little plumbing project at Bible camp. Now, I am a professional plumber on the side, but this was a situation that called for even more than a professional. We got started on the project. The problem is, is that the camp is about an hour and a half away from the nearest Menards. But yet, I'm a professional, so I had everything with that was needed. We got started on the project, and we had to shut off all the water, of course. We were taking apart pipes, and we were going to install some new showers. Well, the situation quickly went into chaos. It got into such chaos that at one point, I don't know who it was, but said, get the campers out of here because I'm going to curse. Now, in the midst of that chaos, you could have looked around, and there was a lot of electrical tools. There was a lot of PVC pipe, a lot of those special little ends that we thought knew where they went, you would have looked in that bathroom and you would have said, there is no hope. Why? Because it was chaos. You had people working on plumbing that are professionals, but shouldn't be working on plumbing an hour and a half away from a store. You see, whenever there's chaos, you can pretty much guarantee the outcome, right? Chaos usually leads to non-hope. Chaos usually leads to what? An unfinished product. Wherever there's chaos, usually there's not victory at the end. I mean, take a sports analogy. If you walked into a practice and there was no organization to the practice, what would you predict is going to be the outcome? That team is not going to be very good. Chaos doesn't produce also much hope. What do you think the people are thinking that are in the midst of that practice where there's no organization? They're thinking, oh, coach doesn't have a clue. We're not going anywhere. Chaos does not produce hope. The problem for you and I today and in society in general is that we have fallen into chaos and confusion about the eternal plan of God or about life after death. 
If you want to know how much confusion and chaos exists, go to your local bookstore and pick up three or four children's books on the subject of death. You'll quickly realize there's a lot of confusion and a lot of chaos about life after death. Just pick up a children's book and look what we're saying to our children about life after death. It's confusing. It's chaos. Now, for the Apostle Paul, there must not have been much confusion and much chaos because the Apostle Paul says in chapter 8, verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying, Hey, what I'm going through right now, this is no big deal because look what's coming ahead. Now, this is not just some token nice statement from the Apostle Paul. It's not like the Apostle Paul was living some lush life somewhere that would enable him to say, yeah, this is, this is nothing. The Apostle Paul was being beaten. The Apostle Paul was in multiple shipwrecks. The Apostle Paul was constantly in prison. He was basically chained to a Roman guard. The Apostle Paul knew suffering and knew suffering well. But yet at the exact same time, the Apostle Paul was able to say, this is nothing. This doesn't even compare with the glorious future that I have. It's because the Apostle Paul had clarity. This morning, my goal is that we would get clarity from God's Word of what God's plan is for history, of what God's plan is for life after death, so that you and I can get clarity so that you and I can live with an eager expectation for that which is to come. Suffering is a universal language. Suffering comes in all shapes and all sizes, but every human being is guaranteed at some point to understand the language of suffering. The question is, in the midst of that suffering, are we able to say, this is nothing, look what's coming. Are we able in the midst of that suffering to still stand strong and be a pillar of integrity, a pillar of joy, a pillar of contentment? We can only be a pillar of joy, contentment, integrity when we have clarity about that which God has promised. And there is clarity. Don't let the children's books fool you. Don't let a Christian funeral fool you. Go to your local funeral. Go to a funeral this week at a church here in Sioux Falls. It's confusion. An uncle will get up and talk about their other uncle that's driving a tractor somewhere on a cloud. Next, they'll get up and talk about they're just doing their most enjoying thing. Next, they'll get up and just talk about how great of a person this person was. All of those things to try and bring some temporary comfort, but all really chaos. And that, that information comes from nowhere but their own minds and their own feelings and not the Word of God. But we can have clarity from the Word of God so that we can have a living hope. God does not give us confusion, but He gives us clarity. Today we are not going to dive into the details about life after death for us as individuals. In two weeks, here's our little ploy to come back, two weeks we're going to get into the afterlife. What happens to us in the afterlife? What's heaven like? What's hell like? We're going to dig into those details of what Scripture says in two weeks. Today we're not going to focus on life after death as individuals. We're going to look at the bigger picture. What is God's big plan? Because we need to understand the big picture before we can understand our part in it. 
Today we're going to dig into the question of what is God's ultimate plan for the universe. What is God's universal desire? What is God's universal plan for all time? And you'll begin to see that when we understand God's universal plan, it should affect the way we live today. Because I would argue today that you are hoping for something and you're working for that which you're hoping for. You're working for that which you're hoping for. So for example, many of you are probably hoping for right now what? A nice retirement, right? But most people are hoping for a nice retirement. So what are you doing? You're working for a nice retirement. You're, you're doing things now to set the table for a nice retirement because that's your hope. That's your confidence is that someday you're going to be able to enjoy. You work for that which you hope for. Think of an athletic team. An athletic team is what? Hoping to win a championship. So what do they do? They show up and they work hard. They practice. They go undergoing physical conditioning. They're working for, for that which they hope for. You and I, if you want to know what you're hoping for, look closely at what you're working for. And I'll hopefully show us today that through God's clarity that what we work for is the exact same thing that we should hope for. This morning, everybody here has got a reason to listen. I shouldn't even spend much time convincing you. First is this. You're going to die. 100% death rate. Everyone in this room, at some point, your flesh is going to give out. It's never been conquered. Even the Pope. Everybody. If even the Pope, who's a lot better than you, if his flesh gives out, your flesh is going to give out. Everybody's flesh gives out. You're, everybody in here is mortal. At some point, it's going to end. It's just reality. Second reason is this, is that everybody here in this room at some point is going to undergo suffering, as I mentioned earlier, and also grief. Suffering produces some sort of grief. The question is, what's that grief going to do to us? How are we going to live with that grief? And until we understand the clear picture of the hope we have, we can't grieve appropriately. So this morning we're going to look together for clarity at what is God's ultimate purpose so that we can leave confusion and enter into a life of hope. Today's non-negotiable, today's non-negotiable for our essential series is that the coming of Jesus and our transformation into final glory is our hope. The coming of Jesus and our transformation into final glory is our hope. We are not expecting a dramatic end. This has been a major mistelling of the Christian church in America. All of your popular books and your popular movies show one thing. That's all of a sudden that this earth just burns and there's this crazy chaos that ensues and everything. The world ends. We're not hoping for the world to end. We're not hoping for this dramatic end. We're hoping for a dramatic change. That's the hope of a Christian. Not that this world ends, but that this world changes. That all things are put right through the return of Jesus the Messiah and the bodily resurrection. There is an eager expectation in our lives for the appearing of Jesus, which leads to the transformation of our bodies. Our ultimate hope is the coming of Jesus Christ. Look with me at Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me there. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21. 
lays out very clearly what we're hoping for. Philippians 3, 20-21, the Apostle Paul writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Notice what it says here first, is that we are citizens of heaven, that we are actually owned not by earth, but we are owned by heaven, which means we are owned by God. Heaven is another way of saying the complete presence of God. So heaven is the complete presence of God. We are owned by God. That's where our loyalties lie. Now notice what it says. Or notice what it doesn't say. It does not say we await a Savior who will whisk us off back to heaven. We're not waiting for Jesus to come and take us home to heaven. We're waiting for Jesus to return to earth and transform earth into his kingdom. Think of all the songs that we sing inappropriately in church. And there's even famous hymns that we sing. That we sing, we focus on Jesus, come take me home. (laughs) No, our hope is not that Jesus would just come and whisk us off. But rather our hope is that Jesus would come and establish his kingdom here on earth. Look with me at verse 21. What's the Savior going to do? He's going to come and transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body and that all things are going to be subject to him. Our hope is the return of Jesus Christ to earth, not just taking us away to some cloud somewhere. Our hope is the return of Jesus Christ. The return of Jesus Christ is an extremely popular subject. Again, go to your local bookstore. The return of Jesus is extremely popular. People show up in droves to study the subject. But here's the problem. It's a popular subject, but the return itself is not really that much wanted. People love to study the subject, but if I said, hey, we're going to have a prayer gathering tonight at 10 p.m., and we're praying for one thing, the return of Jesus, what kind of turnout would we get? It would be minimal. But if we had some local guy come in and goes to the arena and says, Hey, everybody, I've got this book on the return of Jesus, the second coming, what's going to happen, and how America and Israel is fighting right now, and that's going to bring in the return. The arena would be full. It happens all the time. We love the subject, but no one dare wants to come and say, Come, Lord Jesus. Jesus, I want you. We love the intrigue, but we actually don't love the gift itself. The gift of Jesus returning and having his presence here on earth, reigning everywhere here in creation. Our hope is the return of Jesus Christ. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. If you turn in your Bibles to the right of Philippians, a couple of books, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we see it very clearly laid out for us. First Thessalonians 4, verses 13 to 18. I want to look at verse 16. First Thessalonians 4, verse 16. It says to us, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with him in the clouds to meet with the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. 
So the Lord is going to return. Jesus is going to come. When Jesus comes, the people who are dead now are going to rise first and receive a glorious new body. After that happens, those of us who are left at the return of Jesus are going to meet with them in the clouds. Now, this does not say anything about we're going to live the rest of our life in the clouds, we're going to go with Jesus back to heaven. It doesn't say that. But people draw from this that conclusion. It doesn't say that. If you turn to Revelation chapter 20 and 21, it actually gives us a completely different picture. That we don't go off somewhere new, but rather Jesus completely transforms earth into a brand new kingdom. Our hope is not that we'll be whisked off, whisked away from this world, but our hope is that Jesus will return. And our hope is that when Jesus returns, something glorious happens. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, we get this beautiful thick picture of that which we're waiting for. What is it that we're waiting for? When Jesus returns in all of his glory, what's going to happen? Look with me at Romans chapter 8, verse 23. But we ourselves, verse 23, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Our hope is that when Jesus comes, our bodies would be redeemed, which in other words means that our bodies would be glorified, returned to a final state of glory. To be glorified means that we are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. So to be glorified is that God would transform us from the mortal to the immortal, from the perishable to the imperishable. We read earlier in 1 Corinthians 15, the whole focus was that our bodies at that glorious moment when the trumpets sound, are going to be transformed from mortal to immortal. Our bodies are going to be transformed from perishable to imperishable. Right now, you are not immortal. You are not immortal. But when Jesus returns, he transforms us into being immortal and imperishable. All pain, all suffering is gone because Jesus puts, in a, puts us in a final state of glory. That final state of glory is a brand new body. And we're going to get into more of this in the coming weeks. But that's our hope. It's not that we're going to be living on a cloud playing a harp. Our hope is a brand new body that's immortal, imperishable, here on a brand new kingdom where Jesus is reigning because Jesus has returned and transformed everything. Our greatest hope is that Jesus returns and transforms us into a final state of glory. How should that affect the way we live today? Today's practical application, today's PAT. First, I want to just review for a moment. When I do the practical application each week, what I'm really asking is this. Am I living in light of God's truth? So practical application is basically saying, okay, what is God's truth? What would it look like if I lived my life as though that were true? So I lived in light of that truth. So every week what I'm doing is I'm asking myself, if we lived like this was true, what would happen? Three things today. If we live in light of this great hope, the first is this. We would grieve with hope. I could spend an hour on this this morning, and we probably should sometime. Everybody in here has dealt with grief at some point in their life. Some of you this morning are probably actually feeling guilty right now that you're grieving. You're feeling guilty because you're thinking, well, Jesus says in Romans 8 to have this massive hope, and I'm struggling with grief right now. The Bible says, actually in 1 Thessalonians 4, if we go back there, is that we do grieve, but we don't grieve like those with no hope. 
You can actually even look to the example of Jesus. There's moments when we see Jesus grieve. The, the challenge is this. Does grief overtake us and become our God? Three things can happen with our grief. The first thing is this. Grief can lead to anger. Anger leads to a life of bitterness. We grieve the loss or angry at God, which leads ultimately to bitterness against God, which then pours itself out in bitterness to the world and those around us. Second thing that can happen is that grief can lead to guilt. You feel guilty for grieving, knowing the promises of God. And after feeling guilty, what happens is, is that you disengage from the world. Guilt leads to a distance. You distance yourself from God because of your guilt. Grief can lead to bitterness. Grief can lead to distance. Grief can also lead to depression. Your grieving, your grieving leads to apathy because in the midst of your grieving, you don't want to do anything. You feel like you can't do anything, which then leads to apathy when you hear the commands of God. Apathy after a while leads to depression. Grief. If you get in that cycle, you can be a life of bitterness, a life of distance, or a life of depression. What we have to do is we have to grieve as people who have a hope. What does that mean? That means that I don't grieve for the loss of the person. So, for example, if there's a death, as Christians, we don't grieve for that person because that person is resting in Christ. But we ourselves are grieving that we're no longer with them, the loss of presence. So how we have to deal with that is this. First is honesty. I've talked about this the last two weeks. The practical application is just be honest with people, honest confession. If we want to grieve healthy, we've got to meet with people and be honest with them about what we're feeling. And here's the kicker. You have to meet with a Christian who's got clarity about our ultimate hope. Most people are getting grief counseling by someone who's asking them to look inside themselves for hope. All it does is it just leads to this circular motion back and forth. You've got to meet with someone who can continually tell you over and over again that which is your ultimate hope, the return of Jesus and the resurrection being in his presence. If we want to break the cycle of grief, I'd encourage you to grieve to acknowledge your loss, whatever it might be, if it's you personally or death or whatever that grief is, acknowledge it, be honest about it, and then listen to the words of God's promise so that you can grieve with hope. We're not meant to be enslaved to our grief, but rather to be people of hope. First thing we must do is grieve with hope. Second thing we must do if we're going to live in light of this hope, of this truth, is that we must patiently endure. We see it in the Apostle Paul's life in Romans chapter 8. He says that these present sufferings aren't worth comparing. The Apostle Paul gives us an example of patient endurance. That in the midst of bad things, he's able to just patiently endure, keep on going. What I mean by that is this, is that when bad stuff happens, life doesn't collapse or stop. Because bad stuff happens doesn't give us the right to then pull out from living a life of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. Because of our ultimate hope, we should be able to patiently endure the struggle because we know there's greatness coming. We know there's transformation around the corner. Christians should be final on the list of quitters. Rather, we should be patiently enduring even the most difficult things because we know what's around the corner. We know the transformation that comes. We need to grieve with hope. We need to patiently endure. 
And thirdly, we need to seek first the kingdom of God. And you're like, well, obviously we need to seek first the kingdom of God. Think about it for a moment. Our greatest hope is that Jesus returns and establishes a kingdom here on earth. What's the command that Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 6? Seek ye first the kingdom of God. What's the first, one of the first things that we pray for in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Coincidence? Coincidence that Jesus would have us pray for the very thing that is the ultimate goal of history? Jesus is having us pray, your kingdom come. What's the ultimate goal of history? The return of Jesus. So what we need to do is we need to work for that which we're hoping for. We're hoping Jesus returns, his kingdom is established. So that which we work for needs to be God's kingdom. So if I'm working for God's kingdom, which that means is this, I'm doing that which God commands, so I'm living under the reign of Jesus Christ. When I'm living under the reign of Jesus Christ, God's kingdom comes. God's kingdom is here today in Sioux Falls in a variety of ways. Whenever we live by faith in obedience to Jesus Christ, God's kingdom is here. That's what we should be working for, is that bringing about God's kingdom, whenever we can obey Jesus Christ by blessing others, by living in service to those in need. We work for that which we hope for when we are seeking first the kingdom of God, which means we're seeking first the authority and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. Today, you and I can leave the confusion and enter into clarity. Our greatest hope is the return of Jesus Christ and the transformation of our bodies into something glorious because there's a whole glorious new creation. So you and I should be living our lives in eager expectation. The best picture of this is actually a picture of my daughter. I think I've come to understand this great, greater as a father. You have a young child. What are they doing when you come home? Just waiting for you at the door. With what? Great expectation. She'd love to crawl through that glass. Believe it or not, someone actually wants me to come home. She's got one thing on her mind. Daddy, come here. How about you and I today? We should be living our lives in eager expectation. Daddy, come home. As I look at my daughter, I get a picture of actually what you and I should be as children of God. People who are living for one thing, their Heavenly Father, saying, I'm completely dependent upon you. Come, save me. And it's not just this when I get home, at least not yet. When I get home, what's her first thing? It's not, Dad, I need some money. That's probably coming. But right now, what does she want? She wants my presence. How about you and I today? Our eager expectation should be the presence of Jesus Christ. For when the presence of Jesus Christ shows up, there's going to be a transformation, a glorious transformation of our bodies and of all creation. Today, we can enter into clarity because we know the end game. We know the final purpose, the return of Jesus Christ and a transformation of us into a glorious new state. Join me in waiting with eager expectation. Join me in grieving with hope. Join me in patiently enduring. Join me in seeking first the kingdom of God. Let us pray. Almighty God,
You are awesome. We praise You, God. We give thanks for the promise of the resurrection. Thank You for conquering death. We say right now, come Lord Jesus. Jesus, we want You. We want Your presence. We want to be in a glorious new state. Jesus, come. Establish Your kingdom. This morning, God, I pray for anyone in this room that's undergoing suffering, about to enter into suffering, or just leaving suffering. God, I pray that you would capture their hearts this morning with the hope of the resurrection. I pray that you would capture their minds this morning and their hearts with the hope of being in your presence. God, I pray that you'd enable each person in this room to experience your hope. God, thank you. Thank you for calling us to rise to new life. We ask that you would come. In Jesus' name, amen.